Thank you for listening to the latest Irish Tech News podcast. Check back every day for the latest episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish underscore tech news. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Irish Tech News. On LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Irish dash tech dash news. On Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Irish Tech News dot IE. And on TikTok, tiktok.com forward slash at Irish Tech News. Hi everyone, just a quick favour to ask before we get going. Our podcast has gone from strength to strength lately, but we'd like to find out how we can improve. We've put together a short survey and we would love to get your feedback. Anyone who takes the time to give their feedback will be entered into competitions where they can win prizes such as smartphones, cameras and drones. So please visit irishtechnews.ie forward slash podcast dash feedback. That's irishtechnews.ie forward slash podcast dash feedback fill out the survey and to be in with a chance of winning one of those great prizes. Thanks for your time and now back to the podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast. This is your host, Jamil Hassan, also called the Crypto Hipster, uh, where I have intriguing and interesting conversations with founders, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and artists globally in blockchain and crypto. And today, my guest joining us from Solve.care is Pradeep Goel. He's a chief executive officer. Pradeep, welcome to the show. It is my pleasure, Jamel. Thank you for having me here. Oh, you're welcome. So um, to kick things off, uh, I'll first ask you, what is your background? And it is a logical background to what you do now. Absolutely. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to have always known what I want to do. And that journey now spans, you know, I'm 50 plus years old, but 30 plus years of that have been spent doing exactly what I like and enjoy, which is to improve and automate and simplify healthcare. And uh, very early on, right out of college, in fact, towards the tail end of my college in the US, I got involved in healthcare as an innovator, as an IT uh, entrepreneur, and that journey continues to this day. So very consistent, for sure. Great. Now you're in Kiev, right? um ukraine yes currently i am i'm heading back home to us to florida next week or early next week so i shuttle back and forth 50 50. Uh, we have offices in 14 countries but i spend most of my time in us kiev and india after the travel becomes more plausible there so those are three key destinations but we have many other countries where my team is located so i tend to be on the road a lot more than most. Got it. So I wanted to make the, I wanted to make the uh, the inference there that you're in a cold weather right now climate and you or uh, you had spent a lot of years, you know, in the U.S. in a cold weather climate. Uh, talk about can you tell us about some of the lessons that you learned that help you with leadership um, while you were in North Dakota? Well, North Dakota has been sort of my second home. Um, I have lived in Florida for a long time, but you know, contrast in study, certainly. Uh, so one of my, you know, earliest mentors uh, was the uh, one of the senior executives at Meridian Mutual Insurance Corporation, which is based in North Dakota, in Fargo. And uh, he was the person who held my hand when I was in my early teens, I mean, in my late teens to my early 20s, and shaped and guided a lot of my thinking. Uh, and I owe a lot to this gentleman, but he introduced me to healthcare as well. Um, 
So um, Blue Cross North Dakota or Nordian Mutual Insurance Company, which is a parent, has been part of my life for a very long time. But Fargo has been a part of my life even longer. So Fargo is a great, when I first went there, I was in my early 20s, 30 plus years ago. Um, you know, it was relatively not on anybody's radar. It was pretty much a community that was isolated way up north, just south of the Canadian border. But it's been a great community to, to, to make friends and to learn from and to develop some really important skills that have been in good stead over the last 30 years. Um, what I learned in North Dakota, some very interesting things. First, that you do not know how cold it is till you lived in Fargo. Minus 60 degrees Celsius, Fahrenheit was not uncommon with wind chill. You learn things like you've got to plug in your car at night. If you don't, it won't start in the morning. But most important things, jokes aside, you learn is that despite the weather, human will and strength, you know, is far more dominant than any weather conditions. And I, I remember this story, this moment, it was one of my earliest days in North Dakota where I had been assigned to work in the mailroom by the insurance exec that I mentioned, my mentor, to go figure out how mail is opened and how claims are handled when they come in, claims are bills from doctors. And uh, I asked casually, so what time does the mailroom open? And they said, 4.30 a.m. Um, and I'm thinking, okay, so if I really want to learn the game, I need to be up at four and you know, get down to the mailroom at 4.30. And it was brutally cold, whistling wind, and it's a blizzard conditions. And I think I'm figuring I'll be the only one there. At 4.29, the mailroom was packed with people, most cheerful, the most hardworking people who show up. Uh, get this job done, and you know they go home by two two thirty, emptying out the mailroom from tens of thousands of pieces of mail. So I learned a lot from these ladies. Uh, I was young, I was very young, and they were of course, you know, in their later part of their careers. But they were a great role model. And then you learn the power of, you know, um, of just hard work and uh, work ethic. So those kind of things shaped me over the years. Those were really important lessons. And when you were young, and I was literally just into my 20s, I had just, maybe I was less than 21 yet when I was involved in this, uh, when I got involved with Blue Cross. And, uh, you know, you learn a lot from these uh, unassuming, incredibly humble people who get, who are the backbone of so many things that happen in America. So I learned some of my work ethics from there. I made some lifelong friends, but most importantly, my mentor in life, you know, was the uh, chief operating officer of that company, which over the years, of course, I grew into this chief information officer myself, but that was truly a mailroom to boardroom journey for me. Great. I asked you about North Dakota because I spent a year of my life in North Dakota. Um, and I worked at Ingersoll Rand's, uh, at the time, a Bobcat facility in Gwinter, uh, North Dakota, which is a town of 700 people, 90 miles south of Fargo. So, yeah. um, and I learned a lot from that. So I'm always interested to talk to people uh, who spent some time there. Um, so let's get into um, the crux of why um, I asked you to uh, come on today, because, you know, I'm with the Irish Tech News and recently, you know, and one of the comments uh, areas I don't really talk about too much that I want to is this concept of hacking. Right. Uh, hackers infiltrated the Irish Health Service. HSE systems a few weeks ago, um, and they stole significant quantities of patient personal information. So I wanted to ask you about that. What did they steal? 
and what were the actions that were taken by the HSE? Well, I mean, from what I have been able to read online, they were able to penetrate the core patient record system where the patient's demographic data, who they are, where they live, where the phone numbers are, uh, along with some degree, although it wasn't clear from the online information whether they were able to also jump from the patient identifiers to actual patient's clinical records. But I think that is uh, even that's not a well-stated position. But it's clear that the services had to be shut down because they didn't know how far the, the attacks spread. Um, and I think that fundamentally illustrates you know, the issue with when we give our data for custody by anyone, our government agency, our health agency, our insurance company like mine or uh, you know, social media networks or whatnot, we are entrusting that data to someone else for use of a specific purpose and to keep it safe for non-specified, non-authorized use. But the fact that all this data is in one place is a great tempting target and is going to create a risk. And then we try, first we create this enormous risk by pooling all the assets in one place, because data is the greatest asset on earth right now. And then we say, oh, well, this asset that is so invaluable, let's put some walls and moats and alligators around it to keep it safe. But none of those security measures are ever foolproof. So the fundamental question that arises is, first you're gonna create a massive temptation, then you're gonna regret the fact that somebody took advantage of the temptation and breached your security. Um, my view is that we are solving the wrong problem. Putting more and more perimeters around the data uh, is never gonna be enough because somebody smarter than those who built the wall will scale the wall, right? Um, and they have a huge motivation to do so because data is equals control, control equals money. Uh, enormous amounts of money. So I have become over the years an advocate for multiple reasons, but this is one of the reasons that data should not be aggregated. In fact, we need to move towards a de-aggregated view where each one of us is our data store and our data is individualized rather than aggregated. And that's what sort of the decentralization movement uh, can help achieve us, uh, help us achieve that. And, but at the same time, it also brings some more economic parity. My data, my authorization, my reward, not my data in the hands of a Silicon Valley giant who will mine it and sell it for billions. And what do I get out of it? You know, you get a, a like message icon on your phone. I mean, this is, there is a huge asymmetry between my data being consumed by others for their benefit. And they, they tend to throw some breadcrumbs at me. Well, we'll show you ads that are relevant to you. So you'll be able to buy more or we will help you connect to a friend you might like otherwise. But these are very small gains for a very big loss. And the Irish health service attack is another example of that. So if we flip the model, and we must, where data gets de-aggregated into the hands of individuals and they become their actual publisher of data rather than some centralized database, uh, we will be able to address not just this risk factor around single point of temptation that everybody wants to hack into. Uh, but also, I can actually control, authorize, and benefit from my data in a fair way. Uh, equity in use of my data will be restored. But in healthcare, it's particularly important because whoever has the data determines what care I can get, from where I can get, from whom I can get, and at what price I'm gonna get the care at, and if I can get it at all. So when those who have control over data actually determine the quality of my life, 
and quality of my health because they can determine which physicians, what care models, what disease condition, what prescriptions, and at what cost can I access all that? Uh, because that data is used to match me to care providers. That's wrong. Uh, so we are working very hard at SolidKit to address some of this data asymmetry and inequity uh, as part of our mission. Um, but there's also cost reduction. There's also risk reduction. So I'm a big believer that we need to remove the temptation rather than build a bigger mortar around the day. So you just said SolveGog Care is helping to do that. What specifically are you, are you, um, how are you specifically are helping the individual? So uh, while it's a complex solution or complex problem and requires a very thought out solution, I'll try to simplify it for the listener. So in our world, what we have done is we've built a platform similar to, let's say, Salesforce.com for those of us who have used CRM solutions to do business processes. Uh, we have built a blockchain-enabled uh, health relationship management platform on which you can design and launch digital health networks where each relationship with, between participants can be defined and managed in a very transparent and auditable manner. So essentially, think of it as CRM meets blockchain meets healthcare, right? So, and that's what we call a health relationship management platform. The properties of blockchain that we can use here is to to give and take away consent for use of data and to have an immutable, unmodifiable log of activity, which can then protect both sides of the relationship, patient, doctor, doctor, insurer, insurer, patient, patient, employer. Um, these people are essentially in our system treated as a relationship, like, again, like Salesforce would treat them. But that relationship can have very well-defined parameters that are on the blockchain and what they can or cannot do with each other which means that when you form a relationship with somebody, you know exactly what the rules of the game are. What my doctor can do, what I can do, what data they can consume, what data I can consume, who has control over the information, who has to give control over the information. So this health relationship management takes this idea that everything should be in the hands of a single company and they will do the right thing for all the people involved and we must trust them, be it Epic or Cerner or McKesson uh, or even Salesforce. And they will then have, that system will do Clearly, uh, the most equitable, uh, symmetrical use of data. Come on, guys. I mean, what world are we living in here? So we are saying, no, let's move the relationships to individual to, to pairs, A, B pair. Patient is A, doctor is B, and you should continue. The, that relationship should be determined by something that both sides can agree upon. Therein lies the blockchain's power of having a verifiable, unmodifiable contract between these two parties as to what they will and will not do with each other and with each other's data. So that health relationship management platform can then be used to configure really complex relationships. If you go from AB to ABC relationship, you can have an AB relation, you can have a BC relation, then you can have a CA relationship. And you can have all those three relationships to be defined on the platform. And then if you think of it as an ABCDE relationship, you can have an AB, you, you can keep creating permutations and combinations. And what we discovered is that in doing that, there is not a single healthcare process that is currently centralized that you cannot more effectively run in a relationship model rather than in a data aggregation model. And that does many things. One, it allows me to interact with my doctor in a manner that the, the insurance company, me, the old CIO, doesn't have to sit and worry is the patient-doctor relationship according to the rules of engagement. You publish the rules of engagement, if you accept it on the chain, nobody can modify the rules anyway, which means that 
I am bound to that protocol, which means me and my doctor are bound to the rules of that relationship. So nobody has to come in and check on us because the blockchain will capture any variability anyway. Uh, it allows me to work with multiple parties in a coordinated fashion without necessarily sharing the same data with everybody. What I share between AB is different than what I share with AC. And what BC share with each other is different than AB and AC. So I can essentially balance the appropriate sharing of data in a very complex multi-party ecosystem. In some ways, when I say we have taken the CRM framework from business, from all industries, CRM is a very industry agnostic concept, customer relationship management, took that matter to blockchain to produce complete transparency in the relationship model and married it to healthcare, we have built basically the first world's true health relationship management platform on which you can create as many digital relationships as you want. You can create a patient, doctor, payer, or insurer, specialist, nurse, family member, pharmacist, uh, ambulance driver, employer, broker, agent, homemade, psychiatric relationship. It's just an ABCDEFGH relationship model. And you can create as simple to as complex a digital network to address as simple to complex a healthcare need, be it chronic care, be it episodic care, be it preventative care, be it you know, cost management pay payment system, you can pretty much do anything. So at the fundamental level, we have built a health relationship management platform for digital relationships that can be networked into very complex ecosystems. And by, so it is salesforce.com meets blockchain meets healthcare. Just let me ask more simply, if I, have, if I understand this right, you're saying the digital relationship between patient and doctor drives the actual relationship between the patient and doctor. Absolutely. Right. Because then we have on both sides of the relationship a standardized application called Care Wallet. So whatever the relationship activity is, let's say that my relationship rules are that I can share with my doctor my prescription, my vital signs, my symptoms. I can request an appointment, I can send in my insurance eligibility card. Those are my permitted relationship actions. Those actions, the doctor knows what to do with, but their wallet knows that given the relationship definition, this is what they should expect from me. And on the reverse side, this is what they can send to me. They can send me a prescription, an appointment confirmation. They can send me a referral to another physician, specialty care provider. They can make a referral to a pharmacy or a lab for a test. Uh, they can ask for payment and they can receive payment from me directly. So this whole, you know, what used to be a very complex business process managed by third parties is now a relationship definition between him, the doctor and I. And if you had to change something, all you do is to change the relationship definition on the chain and every relationship on the network will change. So in doing so, I don't need to have, first, I don't need to store everybody's data. The patient has their data in their wallet. The doctor has the data on their wallet and the interaction between the data is driven by the published relationship. So I don't need to have a some mega data repository where every patient's data is. I can let any patient talk to any doctor and do seamless data exchange without the patient having to give up control over their data. Got it. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I like that. Um, I, I, I see that you also, um, recently launched a global uh, telehealth exchange as well, right? Um, what is that and how does that work? Is it um, related to what we just were talking about? Is it uh, separate? It is. It's, thank you for asking that question, but I'm really proud of what that is. So 
the Global Telehealth Exchange is a, is a digital health network on our platform. So really, we thought about Global Telehealth Exchange for multiple reasons. First, we wanted to show our clients what is really possible on our platform. So I've described to you the platform in the abstract, you know, health relationship management, care protocol and wallets, and they can do whatever you want. But OK, what are you going to actually do with this platform? So we decided to take on the most complex problem of all. So we asked ourselves the question during COVID times, what could we do with a platform to make access to healthcare better? And we asked a very basic question, what if I pretty sitting in Ukraine could request and speak to a doctor in anywhere in the world? And I could do that using our platform. What if we could define relationships between patient in any country with doctor in every country? And this would be, wouldn't that be the ultimate test of our platform? If you can develop that kind of a relationship, then you can solve any problem. So we started to figure this out that if you, if you, and if you um, uh, take 100, almost 200 countries that are in, on the earth, and if you have uh, 200 countries where patients can be and 200 countries where doctors can be and you allow every possible combination, you have 40,000 potential combinations. But then for each combination, you got to have certain rules of engagement. What is the health law say? What is the insurance policy requirements are? What is the data protection rights there are? Uh, what are the payment rights they exist? Whether cryptocurrency is allowed or whether consents are needed? So you have millions of combinations. So in our world, that means we have millions of health relationships that are possible in the world. So we decided that we're going to build a global telehealth exchange that will allow these relationships to be configured you know, on a, in, a, in waves, and we will essentially build an open provider network where physicians can uh, log into the platform and join this network as a physician and publish what countries they are willing to accept patients from. And those relationships will, be, will then be published on the blockchain. So patients from those countries, when they join the network, can automatically request and find immediate appointments with physicians who have made that relationship possible. So we created this idea of a, a truly global open teleconsultation network where any doctor on the planet can publish their availability and their, their, their practice criteria, the clinical criteria, and any patient on the planet can connect with that doctor if that relationship is permitted. And in doing so, we can democratize access to healthcare. So the idea is real-time appointment, real-time payment, real-time consultation, immediate access to physicians worldwide. And it's really cool. I, I'd love to show it to you. Um, uh, in fact, GTHE goes live on our both Google and Apple Play Store in the, in the, within the next three to five days. It might be even sooner than that, but in the, literally in the next 120 hours. And the idea is that you can download the Care Wallet from the App Store, uh, from the Google Play, and you can register yourself as a patient on it, which is free. Uh, the wallet is free. The GTHE access is free. And you can say that we can request. I just tried it this morning. I want a pediatrician, you know, for my son uh, as a trial. And it put out a request on the blockchain, which was read by every provider node that exists on our chain. And I got one pediatrician from Sweden, one from Saudi Arabia, and one from US saying, if you need to speak to me, I'm available in the next 15 minutes live. And I could see their prices. What the, the price in Saudi was about $40, the price in Sweden was about $80, the price in US was about $60 or $75. And I can choose the doctor I want. And the moment I choose, I pay them using the SALT token, and the doctor's appointment is confirmed. And within, and it's normally a 10 minute wait uh, to give both sides time to get ready. And I could turn on my 
you know, press the, the start appointment button and I'm connected to this doctor in Saudi. I've never talked to this doc before. He doesn't know me. I don't know him. But we have instant relationship established on our platform. So this model of instant access, instant payment, instant relationship that's compliant with laws on both sides has never been attempted before. It's, in terms of scale, it's, it's mind boggling. It's huge. You couldn't do it any other way unless you had a health relationship management system like ours underneath it, which would permit all these millions of permutations and combinations and compute them real time and present them. And both of my consent would get recorded on the blockchain and the doctor's you know, um, payment gets recorded on the blockchain. So both sides are protected. So nobody can, um, you know, can do anything harmful to the other. So this is the ultimate example of using a health relationship management platform to create relationships that are not even thinkable today. Because today there is no way I can start searching for a pediatrician in Sweden on Google. Or what do I do? Just randomly, you know, call some docs in Sweden and say, hey, do you want to talk to me? It would take, it would have no point, it would be a pointless exercise. But in our platform now, these relationships are published. Both doctor and patient know what the relationship match requirements are. If the match happens inside the exchange, I have the choice. So my notion here was my my avatar that I'm trying to serve here is you know the 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 use case that we most focus on is that you have a single parent working two jobs in a relatively underdeveloped geography wherever they are country doesn't matter um, and the only time that they have the time to take care of their kids when they come home at night from the second shift is you know 9 p.m. How many pediatricians are available to speak to? that parent at a price point that this parent can afford. And let's say this parent can only afford $5, not 500, doesn't have insurance for sure. And certainly the option is to go to emergency room and spend the night there, or put a request in care wallet and say, I need a doc right now and I can afford to pay five bucks. And perhaps in the neighboring country, you know, you have a doctor in a global telehealth exchange whose node will pick up the request and go, hey, I'm available right now. So we can use this framework of health relationships, creation and management, you know, for pro bono, for instant access, for underserved or for uninsured or for even those who are fully insured but have limited access. Even if you have a great insurance company supporting you, they can guarantee you that the doctor is available when you want them. So the biggest problem with healthcare is, of course, timely access to physicians. So we are solving that problem. We're doing so in a manner where both the doctor and the patient's rights and responsibilities are clear and protected. So neither side can get outside of the, the boundaries of the HR and the health relationship that we have configured on the platform. So the, this is what we are doing. We're launching Global Telehealth Exchange uh, in 20 countries first, which is in itself amazing because nobody's ever built a multi-country teleconsultation network. You know, there are lots of teleconsultation networks within Ireland, within US, within UK. Many of them are even within a state or they are inside an insurance company. So if you are insured by my old insurance company, you could use my telehealth network, but you couldn't use somebody else's. So we are building the first truly global open network where doctors and patients join voluntarily without anybody dictating to the other what you can or cannot do, but both are autonomous and sovereign. They can decide their needs and their supply criteria, and the demand and the supply matches through algorithm algorithms, which are totally neutral. We are not doing any kind of a, you know, suggestions or recommendations, no. 
our job is to connect patient and doctor, let them choose what they see you know, appropriate about each other. And that connection happens through a permitted relationship definition on our platform. So this is, in terms of human impact, I think it's very meaningful. But in terms of the capability, we use our platform to do this. So I had a, so thank you. I had a question, but I, you, you answered it really well over the course of the interview. So I have, I'm gonna give you a scenario and I'm gonna see how you think you could help, right? And I know you can. Um, in 2004, I quit my job um, and I backpacked across Southeast Asia and China into Nepal. And in Nepal, I read in the, in the paper when I, when I got there, some more people had died from diarrhea. It was monsoon season and there was a parasite and I accidentally had ice cubes. So I was sick. I made it home from Nepal to New York City. Um, I went to the doctor, I said I was sick. He misdiagnosed me, took all the rest of the money I had left. Um, I was sick for nine months and after I was sick for nine months, I got better, but then I ended up with type two diabetes. So I survived, I survived the amoebiasis, right? But I had nine months of illness. How do you think your company could have either prevented that or nipped that in the bud so that somebody like me didn't suffer and go bankrupt for nine months? So I think that is a very valid uh, um, use case. And, and it pains me when I hear about this, because this is so common. We all have these stories to tell. Um, you know, I'm a big believer that if physicians try to do their best they can, but there is human error is always going to be there. Uh, and there's also a skill, knowledge, competency, and availability issue always. So in our case, what we would look to do is, should you first, when you were in Nepal, yeah, you should have been able to consult with local physicians, not just in your geography where you were, but you know throughout that country or in that whole region, Southeast Asia region, where the likelihood of finding a physician that understands this particular illness is a lot like more than somebody who's never encountered that illness in New York City. That's where the misdiagnosis likely happened. So you should have had a choice of physician. So you would put out in the care wallet simply saying, here is my symptoms and I need a physician. And you'd have had a choice of physicians. Uh, and, you, and given the immediacy of it, you could have talked to three different physicians to figure out, you could have triangulated which, what your you know, care model needs to be. The second is when you are back in New York, you could have continued consultation with those physicians back in Nepal, or you could have done it, you know, three, uh, second opinion or a third opinion very, very easily. Even if your insurance company doesn't pay for it, if you are sick after two weeks, you have to be wondering, what am I going, what's going wrong here? Uh, a second opinion would have been extremely timely, not nine months later, but two weeks later. And that would have been very easy for you to take your scenario, share your care card with another physician and say, this is the treatment I'm going through. This is what happened to me in Nepal. Have you encountered this condition? Can you uh, give me a different point of view? So I think the, the way we're going to address human you know, ability, patient's ability to take better care of themselves is to inform them and to give them choices. I love this overused term, patient-centric healthcare. What, what they really talk about is you, Mr. Patient, should be more engaged. You need to be more aware. But we have all your data. We're not going to share anything with you, but you should somehow become a more effective and engaged and compliant patient. It's absurd. This patient-centric healthcare model says, I control all the information about you, but you somehow need to be a lot better at not knowing things. So our vision is, and I, it's not a vision, it's the mission that I want to give the patient the choice. And Global Telehealth Exchange is just one example of giving patient the choice, right? Um, and personally, I'll give you a similar example, not quite as 
yeah, uh, significant impact as yours, but my son, yeah, when he was born, uh, has some developmental challenges. And when he was two, we, we had concerns with a pediatrician diagnosed him with a potential risk and said, you should go find a neurologist and have him be looked at. And this was February 5th, 2017. I remember this day when they diagnosed him. And me and my wife have pretty good insurance, one of the best in the United States and one of the most expensive in the world. Um, and we started to dial for neurologists. And I tell you, we got, after weeks of calling, we got an appointment with a neurologist in November of 2017. And we were resigned to that. And then in July, we got a message from the neurologist office saying that he has retired. Therefore, we, we, we won't be seeing him. So we got back on the phone. And after days of dialing here and dialing there and waiting, I got a second neurologist, which we were able to see in August. So we walk in to the neurologist's office. The guy looks at our son, goes to us. If you had brought him here six months ago, we could have done a lot of things. What the hell took you so long? And I wanted to scream, like, listen, from day one, from 4 p.m. on the on February 5th, I've been calling and trying to get a neurologist here to see him. You don't tell me that we wasted six months and you know we the, the system lost the opportunity. The health system had no ability to serve this kid's needs. And I'm thinking I'm an insurance CIO. I've worked in healthcare all my life. I've worked with on two presidents' healthcare policies. I've implemented billion dollar IT systems and my kid cannot get care because I have no choice. That day, the idea, the seed for global telehealth exchange was planted in my head. And I wanted to build something like this, but to build it, I first had to build the platform. So, you know, I am anxiously waiting to launch the GTHE in the market because I think it will give parents like me a better set of options. Now, whether I use this option every day or I use it occasionally, fine. But I have the option and I want that option, the freedom of choice. And my government should not be telling me that I have no ability as a human being, as an adult, as a parent, to call a doctor in Sweden and get their opinion. Maybe I can get a prescription from them, but I can get their opinion. And that's what I'm looking for, uh, that kind of freedom of choice for parents and grandparents and children. So our society as a, and humanity I shouldn't also be sacrificing my privacy and my data to get care. That's the other trade-off I don't like. I don't like the fact that I have to give up my data to get care. Why is that? Why do I have to sacrifice control over my critical health information for the privilege of getting a prescription? So this notion of data custody should be uh, forfeited just to get care. Uh, we are addressing that in a very unique way. I can give you my data as in my system as an HRM platform, but if I decide to take my data back, I can revoke the consent and the data you have will get re-encrypted in a way that you can't read it. So there are ways where the relationship handshakes protect me. Now, of course, if the relationship does not permit me to take away consent, I can, because that data is also important to you for liability, for billing, for payment. But the fact that the ability exists for me to revoke consent, you know, is nobody's ever done that. You know, HIPAA, GDPR, they all talk about protecting my rights. But really what it means is that I give away my rights to get care. You walk into a doctor's office, you sign your HIPAA consent. What is the purpose of HIPAA after that? That consent form gives them absolute and unequivocal and never ending right to have my data, right? That's not really any patient protection. GDPR says you have a right to be forgotten except and until the other side has a right for the data, then you can't be forgotten. You can tell a hospital, forget that I came to your hospital and got surgery. They're gonna be like, uh, dude, no, you can't be forgotten. 
You can forget coming to the hospital again, but we're going to keep your information in our system because we treated you. So this whole idea that right to be forgotten or Health Information Patient Protection Portability Act, these were well-intentioned but largely inadequate system, you know, laws. Um, and our system is actually trying to restore dignity and rights of the patient and the doctor by actually dealing with the data you know, from a technological perspective. I love it. Thank you. Um, that's great. So I want to thank you very much for your time today. I enjoyed our conversation. I've learned a lot. This is awesome. Um, my last question is, um, is if people want to find out more information about you, about the launch of your exchange, about what you do, what your company does, um, how could they do that? So we are pretty active online. So solve.care is the website. We have a very big Telegram group. Tens of thousands of people are very active daily in that group uh, on Telegram. It's a solve.care group. There is, uh, we certainly uh, write a lot on uh, Twitter and Facebook. But the simplest way is to write to us, uh, either on Telegram or at info at solve.care. Uh, and we'll be, we are always monitoring and we respond very quickly. So please feel free to, um, to write to us or any of the viewers wants to write. We'll be more than happy to take questions from physicians, patients, technologists, government agencies. We are here. Awesome. Thank you very much for your time today. Jamal, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the latest Irish Tech News podcast. Check back every day for the latest episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish underscore tech news. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Irish Tech News. On LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Irish dash tech dash news. On Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Irish Tech News dot IE. And on TikTok, tiktok.com forward slash at Irish Tech News.